Up until this moment, every conversation between Abba and Abram has actually been not a conversation. God says something, Abram does it. Here in this passage, the conversation starts with Abram having a vision. And then God says, uh, fear not. And then in verse 2, for the very first time in, in the whole movement between Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and now, Abram actually says something to God. Well, this good word, people, you know that voice. It's Rabbi Alan Ullman, my friend from Boston, and this good word, resident guru. I love this man. And in this conversation, which actually is going to span this week and the next week, it's going to be two parts, we talk about uh, the passage in Genesis 15. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about it, but it is so rich and so beautiful and so packed with good things. Where I'm going to leave you off at the end of this week, you're going to shoot me. <laughs> but that just means you have to stay tuned for next week. So, enjoy. Hello, Alan. Hello, Steve. Oh, man. Here we are. Uh, I think this is your fourth time on the podcast. Fifth time? <laughs> That's why we call you the resident guru. <laughs> you can call me out. Um, so uh, here we are. It's a beautiful spring morning. Mm. Um, and we're going to go for as long as we can. And just so listeners know, what we're going to do after this is uh, we're going to sit with 10, 12 other people. And throughout the day, we're just going to study a passage of probably Torah, but might be something else. And it's going to be a circle of people, men and women of different ages. And we will be led by you. And I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking to them too, which is odd because I want them to know like what we do. Um, and it's like you are a river rafting guide and you're, you're just, you're thrilled. It's like the 75,000th time you've been on this river, but you also treat it like it's the first time. And so there we all are, newbies in the raft. And, oh, look at this coming up. Oh, my gosh. You know, and then we paddle together. And, no, oh, look at that cliff face over there. It's like, and then we stop. And then and we notice something that's never been there before. I've, you'll, you'll say something like, I've paddled down this river, metaphorically, you know, probably a hundred times. I've never seen that particular outcropping of whatever. And that's how it is, yeah, right? I had that happen yesterday, actually. Did you? Uh, where we were going down a river. I've been down. Uh, we were in Ezekiel 47. Yeah. And we were looking at how Ezekiel is communicating to the people in exile um, that there is hope. And he uses a word to describe the water coming out from under the platform of the... Uh, well, some translators will translate it the house, others will translate it the temple in Ezekiel 47, verse 1. It's habait in Hebrew, which literally is the house. Anyway, there's water issuing forth. And most of the translators will say issuing forth or flowing forth. But it's the word yatsa. And the, the word yatsa is to leave. Um, and it's used over and over again when the Israelites are leaving Egypt. So it's about moving from slavery to freedom. And then um, our dear friend um, Scott was there, and he said, um, 
The first usage of the word is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, when the seeds are yatsah, yeah, coming yeah. forth from the ground. And I'm going, what? How did I not remember that? So, in other words, if the Israelites, or the people of the kingdom of Judah, in the Babylonian exile, can see that the living waters are there, yeah. and that they are flowing forth, know that they are leaving that there is hope for them to leave the Babylonian exile and return to their tov, return to their actualization for the potential of life embedded in the creation by God when the creation brings it forth with the seeds of future life in it, that there is hope that that can be their future. Because the dilemma that the people are having from the kingdom of Judah in the Babylonian exile is they know that the 10 tribes of the north went off into exile and never returned. Right. And actually, there's precious little historical evidence of any kind that anybody, any people in this time period had ever been conquered and returned. Right. So they genuinely are going off into exile believing that God has abandoned them or that they have sinned so egregiously that there's no hope of return and they're going off into exile and they will simply vanish. vanish right so but ezekiel is cross-referencing the leaving of egypt but he's also cross-referencing the idea that there is still hope for their tov to come forth if they can just reconnect with the living waters yeah so there it was. It was something that, how could I have not seen that before? Uh, but there it was, and I didn't. And then the moment Scott pointed out, I went, what? And I went and double-checked the Hebrew, and it was like, ah. Anyway, Absolutely. Yeah. So every single time, it's, it's not simply someone else in the room learning. It's all of us as learners and teachers, and we're just, um, like, one of the expressions I hear a lot nowadays is, Oh, he really poured forth into me, or she yeah, poured yeah. forth into me, or I poured forth into her or him. And you no, know, we're pouring into each other. Yeah. It's this incredible mutuality that happens when we're really in study in the text. So uh, trying to climb out of I and all the I into what I really see going on all through the text is we. And mm -hmm. we are doing this together wherever two or more of us are gathered. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop Gosh. because this isn't actually the topic of the no. morning, but I'll stop. So, yeah. <laughs> well, what we're going to do today is we're going to actually have a little study. And what we've done in the past is we've we've done that, but we've sort of said, let's talk about light. And then we've, tr you know, we've traced light from Genesis 1 all the way into the newer covenant. Today, what we're going to do is take a look at six verses in Genesis 15, one through six. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages. And um, can you just, before we do that, I want to do the, the, the wall thing, but can you tee up, I asked you the question, what is the essence of Genesis 15? Can you tee that up? Sure. Um, up until this moment, every conversation between Abba and Abram has actually been not a conversation. God says something, Abram does it. Yeah. Here in this passage, the conversation starts with Abram having a vision. And then God says, uh, fear not. And then in verse 2, for the very first time, 
in, in the whole movement between Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and now, Abram actually says something to God. So I want to suggest if we think about the movement in the book of Genesis, of course we are asked to hear God's voice and do what God has said. But there's another layer of relationship waiting to happen, which is when we speak to God. Yeah. And when Abram speaks in this very first time that he speaks, the first thing he speaks is one of the deepest, deepest places from one of the deepest places of his heart oh lord god what can you give me seeing that i shall die childless ah how vulnerable right how incredibly laying himself open he's not talking about there are so many things he could talk about so many things he could be asking about but what he's asking is something very very vulnerable yeah and I want to suggest we aren't at Sarah and Abraham. We're still in the state of Abram and Sarai. So that transformational moment when the letter Hey of God's name enters into the names of Sarai, Sarah, Abram, Abraham hasn't happened yet and actually won't happen for two more chapters. But at this moment, we are transitioning to the next step when I not ashamed to say one of the deepest things in my heart which yeah. is god i want to love you god i want to trust you god i want to believe you but this thing which is absolutely essential to me and really not just to me but to sarai and not just to sarai and me but to the future it's not happening and can we name that and what does it mean to name that to god right <laughs> right your and most intimate longing the thing that you're afraid to ask the thing that you want to talk about and to me this is the beginning of the movement back to what does it mean to be naked and unashamed mm. you see look uh, i think most people would agree all joking aside that we don't really want in our marriages or in our sibling relationships or in our relationships with our children i speak and you obey <laughs> i mean we might joke about that and yeah. say well, wouldn't it be sweet but no we, what we really want is to be in relationship yeah we want to be spoken with we want to communicate we want to explore together we want to understand and actually i think those of us who have been married for decades know that sometimes you wake up and you go i'm meeting you for the first time yeah and how incredible breathtaking is that that i thought i knew you pretty well but here you are yeah but it's the same with friendships it's the same with uh, parent-child relationships it's the same with so many things um are actually also child-parent relationships i remember being in my 40s and my father blessed memory said something and i went what what wait could you explain what you just said and he explained it more and i said i never knew you thought that and he said oh yeah of course i've been thinking about that for at least a decade and i'm going yeah. Where have I been for the last decade? You know, so yeah, you know, I I just had a moment like that with my dad. Um, mm. We were in Florida together. My mom and dad rented a house, and they invited us down. And the kids were outside, and Mary and my mom were talking, swimming in the pool, and my dad and I were just inside. And we just fell into this conversation, and uh, it and and a new something opened up like a flower between us. Yeah, and. It was, it was like that. I mean, it was like, 
oh my, there you are. I've known you obviously for my whole life and we're close and we've always been close, but right here's something else. And that <clears throat> capacity for ongoing, unfolding, sacred intimacy to me is what is one of the A-R-C-I-N-G, arcing trajectory themes in scripture. It's not like we could ever come to the end of the capacity of God for sacred intimacy. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, you know, we got here and now it's done. Yeah. Um, so it's the willingness to be truly vulnerable, to be truly naked and unashamed, to ask the thing. And actually, of course, Jesus teaches, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find. But I don't feel like what he's asking for is, say, ask for a bicycle. No, can you really ask for? Yeah. And here it is. The first time Abram says anything and he's asking for something and what he's asking for is so absolutely. And and he's asking for something that in the context of his life is so dramatically heartbreaking. Decades of chronic infertility. So after decades of chronic infertility, especially, you know, of course, in the ancient world, people would say, yeah, there is no hope. Yeah. And what does it mean to actually express hope in the midst of that? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's to me, this is so huge and it's the start of the conversation and, and of course, there's many ways of communicating with God. And actually one could read the whole text for how people talk to God mm. and it would be, you know, incredibly a rich conversation, but, um, here's the first time he says anything. Oh, what a moment. I mean, I think it's so key on so many levels and I would actually encourage everybody to ask yourself what's the first thing you really said to God yeah yeah and to remember that because yeah. when you remember the first thing you really said I think more often than not you'll see something quite important about yourself and or perhaps ourselves and what God's response was. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so what, a, what an invitation. Yeah. So, um, before we get into the text, even though we're, we're already in, and it's we're not, late, and we're baby, in. It's too late, it's too late. So, I am a person of faith who happens to be Christian. You are a person of faith who happens to be Jewish. And we say that intentionally. And... You have told me a story about sort of your vision because you you teach uh, people that are Jewish. You teach people that are Christian. You teach people that don't have much of a faith. You teach um, and you have a vision for what you're trying to do that I think is just so captivating. Can you share that vision and that tell that story? Sure. Absolutely. Um, although this is like so many things uh that in my life, which is um, actually what I understand is really something that somebody else saw. Got it. And then it goes, oh, yeah, 
Oh, that's what I'm doing. Okay, got it. Now I got it. Well, that's so much of how it really happens, isn't it? Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, it's not like we're sitting around some, you know, stroking our beards. Yeah, yeah. I have a perfect picture of yeah. what I'm actually doing, and I received it all by myself right, right. from stone tablets. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, the, to me, the idea of sitting around stroking my non-existent beard would be... Um, <laughs> I mean, you know me, I like to get out and about and do things. <laughs> right. So, uh, sitting in a dark basement, yes, right. contemplating your right. humanity I know. and God. I don't understand how, I mean, I'm in <laughs> awe of you, to be honest, because what it would mean to actually sit down and write and write something intelligent, I mean, I don't have this, I don't have the patience for it. Um, I don't well, have the, uh, <laughs> okay, let's just also notice though, like on the spectrum of introversion and extroversion, <laughs> Yes. you know, I am. I'm like, I'm toward introversion. I, I'm close to the middle. You create a whole new standard <laughs> for extroversion. extroversion. Right, right. So right. that's just. Okay, fair enough. I'm fair a person enough. of faith who happens to be an introvert. <laughs> You're a person of faith who happens to love every single human being on the planet. <laughs> Uh, I'm just a misanthrope. You know? No, but that's an SAT word. So <laughs> <laughs> you can Google that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So, um, uh, so I'm, so I'm teaching in England. Oh, this is maybe six or seven years ago now. And it's a very, uh, it's in a room in England in a community that I teach in frequently. And, and um, it's 30 or 40 people in the room, and we're studying um, Genesis 41 when Pharaoh is brought before Joseph. And, you know, Pharaoh has called Joseph out of the prison, and Joseph comes out of the prison. And then Pharaoh listens to Joseph. And I ask a question to the group. Who is the most alien other that you have ever brought into your life, listened to, and then did something that the person had said? a la Pharaoh inviting Joseph in and and Joseph is, of course a Hebrew slave in prison on the charge of rape and Pharaoh is Pharaoh and yet he listens to him anyway so I asked this question and very rap there's a bit of silence and then in the silence um, a gentleman who's in his 50s starts to weep just weep and um, it really takes the room aback because we all know him. He's not that type. And, um, and so the room gets very quiet. And he composes himself. And I ask him if he would like to say anything. Um, and he says, could you repeat the question? So I repeat the question. Mm-hmm. And then he looks me straight in the eye and says, you. Meaning me. I am the most alien other he's ever brought into his life. Mm. He's a British um, evangelical and I am a Jewish rabbi from America. Um, The whole room bursts out laughing. And then um, when and uh, and it's this very sweet laughter of a kind of recognition of how precious this room is. And then I say to him after we all kind of get back, um, could you say more? And he says, I'd actually like to. And this is pretty unusual for him because he's kind of reticent. He doesn't speak a lot. Although when he does, it's usually um, jewels. Anyway, he says, about 1900 years ago, a wall started to go up between my people, meaning 
from him, Christians, and your people, meaning for me, Jews. And that wall over the centuries has just gotten higher and thicker. And people make whole careers about putting bricks in the wall and making it more defensed and more impenetrable. And it's gotten to the point where people who don't feel that way just stay away from the wall because it's just yeah. too, too tough. And he said, for one of the very first times in his understanding of the last 1900 years of history around this topic, he feels like we are going up to the wall attempting to take a brick or two out. Meaning, how many times have Christians and Jews really studied the text together in sacred study? Not to say, like, I'm okay, you're okay, or isn't right, it a beautiful right. world, which is all fair, nothing wrong with those things, but to actually sit in intense study over God's living word. And, you know, as I thought about it, um, it's one thing to write a book, as beautiful as that is, but when you get face to face and you really hear each other's voices, that's kind of getting into a, a relational state, which, yeah, we'll talk sports, we'll talk politics, we'll talk history, we'll talk philosophy, but talk the text and not turn it into generalities. Yeah. Yeah. So that was for me one of those moments where I suddenly felt like somebody had lifted up my head and went, oh, hmm, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm attempting to join others who would like to somehow construct a bridge across this huge chasm or maybe over this huge wall because my experience of since I've really started to teach in Ireland and England and in um, the Christian world in America is that I know I'm teaching but I'm learning I would say more than I'm teaching although we could have conversations about that but the point is I'm learning so much which every world is that I've ever been in it is beautiful, but there are things in other worlds that don't exist in our world. Yeah. And vice versa. Meaning, being in Ireland, I've learned so many things that I'm pretty sure I could teach anywhere in America, but I couldn't learn. <sighs> because, do I have time to tell a story? Yes. Okay. So this um, takes place maybe four or five years ago. I'm in, County Donegal, and I'm in a little pub in a town called Dunfanahy, which is set on a, a, a on the bluffs on the far north um, western part of the island. And this pub, it's about eleven at night, and it's when a whole other level of what I would call old Irish songs start to break out. So the song is about a, the the time of the potato famine, and it's about the, it was written in the early 1850s. And what was going on is there was a port city to the east of Donegal, um, which people were sending their children to, to get on boats to go to America. 
So since it was to the east, the boat would have to pass by this town on the bluffs. Um, and it tended to leave on a weekday early evening. And it's the 1850s. You're sending your kids away because you don't want them to die of starvation and, and, yeah. and to America. And you probably might not ever hear from them again. In case, in, incidentally, if you didn't die from the famine. But even if they got there, how would you know? And it's... Anyway, and what the song is about is that the, the people of the town would take their pitchforks, go up on the top of the bluff, stick their pitchforks in the sod, pour warm paraffin over the sodded pitchforks, and then stick a rope in, light the rope so that it became kind of huge candles. Yeah. And they would line up upon the bluffs for like a mile and wave their pitchforks mm. saying goodbye as the boat would go by to America. So that maybe if their kids were able to, they could see them waving goodbye. <laughs> I mean, I, as, even as I tell you the story right now, it's very hard to not. Um, the whole pub, it's just four years ago or five mm. years ago, is weeping as they sing the song. And I realize huh, I'm in my late 50s and I've never really been in the room of those who remained. And what are the songs they have and what are the stories they tell and what does it mean to be the people who stayed? Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in a country of people who left. And, and then suddenly, even though I'd already been teaching in Ireland at that point, um, for about five years, a whole set of communications and ways of looking at the text and ways of being in relationships slotted into place in a very different way. And I realized, of course, we all answer here from a perspective of those who left. Yep. But what does it mean to be those who stayed? And without, and I don't mean anything plus or minus on no. either, it's just a completely different perspective. And what are the stories you tell and how do you experience staying and what does it mean to have remained and what is your relationship to the land and what is your relationship to place and how do you on and on and on. So there are things that we can't learn no matter where we are here. Yeah, we have to be there embedded and listening Right. To the alien other and doing. Right. And and sharing life because, I mean, I've been very blessed to lead trips like hiking study trips all over the Alps. But it was with people from America, mainly. And so it was Americans in the Alps and we would tend to hang together and hike together. It's very different when you're in Ireland or wherever you might be for two weeks and you're teaching and you're only teaching and doing hikes and doing things with people of the place. Yeah. Ah, shapeshifts everything. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> so much. Anyway, it's, so it's not about, oh, we're better or they're better. Climbing out of all that, it's just there are things that we can learn that we can't learn unless we are in those other places. And so, for example, when I'm in Ireland, I'm often in rooms with 20 or 30 people or traveling with 20 or 30 people hither or to someplace, and I'm the only American. So suddenly it becomes 
not here, but truly there. And then the learning begins. And um, well, there's so much to say about this, but we're going to get away from the passage too far. So I think I'll stop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, and I want to, this may be the worst segue in the world, but you know, we forget sometimes that for Abram, God was the alien other. So far as we know, Abram doesn't have a relationship with God before Genesis 12. We don't know that, but I think we could say, I mean, Bruce Feiler in his great book, um, Abraham, he tends to think, yeah, I mean, Abram is this person with no recorded childhood other than, you know, he kind of, his father picked up and was headed toward Canaan, but never got there and settled in Haran. And so... Um, well, you see, I think Bruce Feiler's onto something deep. Yeah. Because, and this really starts with Cain and Abel. In the first passage of the first human beings, born of human beings outside the garden, there's nothing about their childhood. There's nothing about their sibling relationships, nothing about their child-parent relationships. The text actually starts to dive in the first moment they want to come into relationship with God. Yes. And then suddenly we're now learning about Cain and Abel. And I think Filer's on to something big that what that sets as a template for the text going forward is that what the text is interested in is when we come into relationship with God and or God comes into relationship with us, that's where the story begins. Yeah. So that's why I think he's making a profound point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, could you read Genesis 15, one through six out of your translation? Sure. And then, um, and then we'll just go. Sometime later, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God said, fear not, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what can you give me, seeing that I shall die childless, and the one in charge of my household is Damashek Eliezer? Abram said further, Since you have granted me no offspring, my steward will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him in reply, That one shall not be your heir, none but your very own issue shall be your heir. God took him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And God added, so shall your offspring be. And because Abram put his trust in the Lord, God reckoned it as righteousness. Okay, so let's go. Uh, God comes to Abram, and some, the word of God comes to Abram. However that happens, stroking his beard out on a walk. <laughs> Writing on his laptop in his basement, talking to his wife, who knows, uh, and says, I will be your shield. Yes. What is, what is that? So, what I understand going on in verse 1 is that Abba is very conscious that Abram has not yet spoken. Right. And he's assuring him. Okay, just pause. Um, because not everyone knows the story. In Genesis 12, Lech Laha, Abram gets invited to leave everything he knows. And he does it. And he does it. And he does it. But 
all, you know, so 12, 13, 14, chapter 15, so far we have no recorded conversation from Abram to God. Exactly. It's only been God speaking to Abram. Yeah. Now, Abram is speaking to God. And, well, just to... So Abram is speaking to God. And in verse 1, fear not, Abram. I understand that to be fear not to speak based upon what uh -huh. happens in verse 2. Yeah. Um, I will be your shield. Now, I will be your shield. In the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. But it's alpanai, on my face. You shall have no other gods on my face. So, what I understand that to be saying is, what we're being asked to be is naked and unashamed. To be present to God. Not to hide our face, but to come present. Now, I will be your shield is asking Abram to do something very difficult. If God is going to be our shield, and we're going to be in sacred connection to God, and truly walking with God, before God can be my shield, I have to stop carrying my shield. Zzz. Yes. <laughs> right. Zzz. You shall know the gods before yeah. me. Shields, plural. Right. And one of my shields is not being willing to speak the truth of my heart or the truths of my heart oh, okay stop play that again one of my ways of being impenetrable right guarded guarded is to have the shield up of i'm never going to really say what i really really feel we all know and have been in personally wherein somebody finally says something or does something and the relationship ascends or goes to a deeper level or goes to a higher level, whatever. Um, and you go, well, you never shared that with me before. Thank you so much for sharing that because now we're at a different level. Yeah. One of our greatest shields is the act of withholding. And in withholding, we stay safe. We keep that most precious, vulnerable thing hidden. Isaiah 45 verse 3 I think is pointing to this in a very intriguing kind of way. There are treasures hidden in darkness. So we've got all this treasure buried within us but we don't often bring it out. And in a sense this becomes why I think people read Joseph in Genesis 37 in a way that the text actually doesn't intend. When Joseph shares his dreams, a lot of us go, come on, Arrogant. use your common sense, dude. If you would just yeah. realize that's not the kind of thing you say. It's going to tick people off. People are going to be angry. What did you expect would happen? <laughs> but you could say said the exact same thing to home so many figures in history. Come on, Martin Luther King Jr. You got to know that if you say the kind of stuff you're saying, that's going to get people angry at you. And, you know, but sometimes you really got to say it. And so the invitation here is don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. But if 
if we are really going to let God be our shield, we got to put down our shields. Yeah. And then it turns out that our reward will be very great if we can put down our shield. And then, sure enough, of all the possible things that could happen in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, Abram is speaking. Ah. Now, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that to speak in a sacred sense, in a way that God speaks, is to create. Yes. Ah. And of course, I'm presenting the thought that this is the beginning of Abram walking with God and becoming not equal but co-creating mm -hmm. the sacred future yeah we are at the beginning of a conversation that will lead to israel genesis 32 uh, verses 27 through 29 israel meaning one who wrestles with god and with people and is able ah so we're entering into the wrestling match the wrestling match of bringing forth that which is in us the tove the actualization for the potential for life embedded in us by God bringing that forth. But we can't bring it forth unless we name it. Yeah. And so we're in the act of naming it. Um, and that's what happened to me in England in that day, six or seven years ago, where somebody named something and I went, oh, huh, that's what I'm doing. Okay. Um, well, nice to know. Now, then, of course, I went right back to teaching the study session. So it's not like suddenly I'm, you know, uh, doing anything different, but I'm doing it from a different place because now I'm going, oh, okay, that's what this is about on a larger level. But still, you got to teach the passage and you got to teach the verse. Right now we're in verse two. You know what I mean? You're yeah, always yeah. just where you are because where else could you be? Well, and I think that's fascinating because um, we tend to think much more compartmentalized than that. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to hear from God at church. And then the other, you know, 167 hours of the week, I'll do whatever I want to do. Versus I'm driving down the road and a rock hits my windshield and my windshield starts to crack. It happened to me yesterday. Um, and I start thinking about all the, you know, just broken areas of the world and my life. And I'm just driving down the road and, and, and this crack is spreading. It's like before my eye, I can't see it spreading. I can't, but then the next time I look at it, it's moving. You know what I mean? So there's this, if we can see and hear the invitations that happen every nanosecond um, and quit compartmentalizing, yes. we're going we're to keep doing the verse or keep um, pouring the latte at our work at Caribou or keep, you know, um, helping the kids get off to school. And, and But God doesn't stop speaking and inviting and being our shield. and Right? So, can I tell you a strange story? Yes. Yeah. seem to be full of stories this morning. Love <laughs> so it. Sorry. Okay, friends, I told you I was going to leave you off at a point where you would want to kill me. Uh, next week, tune in. We will start it off with the story he's about to tell, and it's all about what it means to see as God sees. It's so good. So, please come back next week. Also, uh, this week and for the next several weeks, I'm going to be, um, by permission, sharing some of my favorite new music. My friend Stu Garrard, you might know him as Stu G, formerly of the band Delirious. He's just written a book called Words from the Hill, and it's all about the Beatitudes of Jesus. And the book is amazing. I'm going to put the link to buy the book on the show notes. But also, he's uh, put together a compilation, um, a CD with some 
brilliant artists like Audrey Assad, uh, John Mark McMillan, uh, Amy Grant, uh, and many others. And it's a brilliant and beautiful record. So um, the song today was Oh Blessed, and uh, you're going to love it. So I'm going to put the link to buy that record. Uh, please buy it. Please share it. It is so very good. Okay, friends, uh, tune in next week for part two of Genesis 15 with Rabbi Allen. And until then, we are human and holy. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. And we are in it together. Peace, my friends. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Weens, and this is my podcast where I explore humanity, spirituality, and mystery one word at a time. For more about my work, my writing, my preaching, my books, and all that good stuff, head on over to steveweens.com. Dot com.